Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to read it, study it, and to um, learn from you, Lord, afresh this Sunday morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit would work through um, my words, that, that what I say would simply reflect, Lord, the truth that is in your text to the, the heart of the hearer. But Lord, we want you to be glorified. We want to see you high and lifted up. We want to see you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, uh, draw our gaze through your word up to heaven. Lord, to, to worship you now as we, as we place ourselves under the preaching of your word. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The Irish poet and playwright... Oscar Wilde noted in an article the following. Wherever there is a man who exercises authority, there is a man who resists authority. Now think about that. I think it's a pretty true statement. The struggle between authority and submission has been around since the beginning of creation. God told Adam and Eve that they could eat of any of the fruit of the garden except for the fruit on one tree along comes Satan and he says did he really say that and of course Eve believes this person who assumed to have authority to speak and as a result we are now all in sin a young second lieutenant Fort Bragg discovered that he had very little change and he was hungry and there was a vending machine but he didn't have enough to get what he needed and so he looked around and he saw a private walking his way and so he said to the private hey private do you have any change so I can get something from the vending machine and the private was like well I think I do yeah sure let me find out and then the lieutenant said private that is not a way to talk to a lieutenant he says let's start this again private do you have any change that you can give me for this vending machine? And the private saluted and stood up straight and said, No, sir! This is what happens with authority that gets twisted and is abusive. See, societies have often had a love-hate with authority and you have political movements that are that are struggling and and other movements that are within government societies that are working together to to gain ground or to have power in our I might say american history the 60s of course birthed all sorts of of kind of resistance against authority and sometimes that resistance had some, some good results, the, the, the reconciliation, so to speak, of, of racial equality. And the, you go back even further in the history of America, the, the ability for both men and women to vote, and even those who didn't own property. So there are movements that, that kind of resist that authority that may be done in the right way that bring about the right kind of change. But at other times, the resistance is more of a rebellion that's rooted in mankind's selfish pursuit of its own sinful pleasure. Of course, this brought about the, the, the sexual revolution that bore fruit in things like more and more children being murdered through abortion or more broken marriages and families or gender confusion, which is what we're, we're dealing with today. And 
the rise of disease. If you remember back in the 80s, this, the whole AIDS and HIV thing was a huge epidemic, but the truth was not really being spoken because it wasn't politically correct to do that. Today, our government seems to be imposing itself on our lives, and we feel it in many different ways. I think as Christians, we feel it, in particular in the area of education, where our kids, if they go to a public school setting, um, are by the government mandated to actually listen to things that con are contrary to the teachings of Scripture. And if a parent is to say, you know what, I don't want my child to listen to that, then that child, oh yeah, you can remove that child, but then you're going to face consequences or you know, have a lower grade for that child. But hey, if we're going to have a march around the whole country that goes out, then you can, you have to be at that, you know. So there's this, all these pressures that are happening in the context of education that, that just kind of smack a little bit at, the, at the, the, the essence of who we are as believers in that context, and certainly in the arena of taxes. You know, people are forced to pay taxes for things that they don't agree with, that violate their conscience, and yet we have an authority and we need to submit to that authority, and we pay our taxes. We don't necessarily see exactly how those funds are, are, are going, but it's, it's there. Um, in the area of global warming, there are some days that I can't cut my grass, for crying out loud. All I want to do is cut my grass. All right, now if you work in that business, I think there's some leeway, but if you're a homeowner, there you actually have people on your street that are looking out to see whether or not you're cutting your grass on that day or not. And again, these are mandates that are put down by um, authority. And then, of course, we're restricted to 65 miles per hour on the, on the roads. I mean, what's, what's up with that? You know, drive across America and go through uh, Utah, through, um, through Nevada, and you will wonder at speed limits. I think it's like 80 or something like that. And you still feel like you're going slow because there's nothing around you. Absolutely nothing. Now, I just share all those, not, to, not because I want to I preach on those things. I just want to identify the fact that we are living in a society that functions with authority structures. And the reality is that in order for a society to function with any kind of order, there need to be people who are placed in authority who can set the guidelines, who can enforce them as well, but also who represent the, the will or the wishes of the people and so authority is necessary, but it can be abused, and there will always be resistance to it. But if you're in a position of authority, and you are entrenched in that position, it is very difficult to give it up. There was a captain who was on the, the bridge of a large naval vessel, and he saw ahead um, a light on a collision course with... Um, his vessel, and so he signaled, alter your course 10 degrees south. And the reply came back, alter your course 10 degrees north. And the captain then signaled, alter your, ten, your, your course 10 degrees south, I am a captain. And the reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am a seaman third class, which is less than a captain. The furious captain signaled, alter your course 10 degrees south, I'm a battleship. The reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north, I'm a lighthouse.
Now, in our text today, we're going to see a collision course of authority. We're going to see a rusty battleship coming up against a rock and a lighthouse that is Jesus. Because Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority. And he is going to be challenged about his authority. So what Mark is going to reveal for us today is this. That Jesus has complete authority to speak into our lives. Why? Because he is the very son of God. Now, friends, I know if you're if you a follower of Christ, you know this to be true. But we want to see how this story unfolds and why this is true and what Jesus does to demonstrate that this is true and then consider then the implications of that for our lives. But let me remind you what we've already been doing in Mark's gospel and also what is yet to come in Mark's gospel. Looking back, Jesus has been taking the place of the temple during his ministry. He announces forgiveness. He heals the sick. He opens the blind eyes. He um, opens the deaf ears. He raises people from the dead. He restores ostracized people to society. And looking ahead, he replaces the tables of the money changers with the table that we call the Lord's table where he announces his free offering of life and the forgiveness of sins. We'll see that he presents himself as the sacrifice once for all. In other words, those Old Testament sacrifices, the sacrifices that are going on in the temple are not needed anymore because the sacrifice is here. And so by his death and his burial and his resurrection, he birthed The church, the new temple, which is made up of believers whose bodies are the very temple of God. So let's begin by um, considering now Jesus' authority that is being questioned. And let's just read verse 27 to get the beginning of this context. It says, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, Mark is giving that information specifically because he's already revealed something earlier when Jesus is foretelling what it was going to happen to him when he came into Jerusalem. So just go back a few pages, Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. And I want you to notice what it says there. It says, and he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And here we are, Jesus is in the temple and he's being confronted by who? Chief priests, scribes, and the elders. And what have we been told in the context of this? And even at the end of of our text that they wanted to kill him. So all that Jesus has been saying now is coming to to fruition. This is happening now. This This is going on. What he said is true. Now the chief priests, they were made up of the high priest, the former high priest, as well as the priests 
that were actively at work in, in the temple. The scribes were the, the, the learned legal experts as far as the law is concerned or as far as the, the text of the Old Testament. The elders, they were laymen drawn from the Jewish aristocracy. They made up what we've been calling the religious leadership of Israel. And you can just imagine what they have been thinking just over the events that took place the day before. Hey, Jesus, we know that you came into Galilee. We know that you've been going around doing good in Galilee. And, and even there, you challenged some things about the Sabbath. And, and yet, at the same time, we recognize that the, the healings you did, you actually accomplished those. Those were real. We, we were, not, were not balking at that. And we can, we can tolerate to some degree that there will be some upstarts who try to stir up dissension. It's happened before. It'll happen again. But then you came into Jerusalem and you were surrounded by crowds and they were, they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're talking about the, 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 the deliverer has come. And we understand how easy it is to fool the crowds and get a following. You won't be the first person that's done that. You won't be the last. But now you've gone too far. You have come into our house, into the temple of God, and you have caused a day of mayhem in the very sacred place of the temple. Now we have a problem, Jesus. Now you've gone too far. Now we are really upset. Now you will have to answer some questions. So here we have the question that they ask. By what authority... Are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? You know, who was it that died and made you king, right? Who gave you the right to come in here and tell us how we are to do what we're doing? How dare you? I mean, this is the kind of feeling. These are the kind of attitudes that are being expressed here, even by this question. By what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority to do them? And what are the, these things? His actions in the temple, as well as his teaching in the temple. Both of those things were going on, if you remember. And so it's worth noting that in Mark's gospel, those who approach Jesus with hostility never receive direct answers from him. He usually fends them off with his own questions, and that's exactly what we have here. He answers their question with a penetrating question of his own. So now Jesus questions the religious leaders. Verse 29, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. What is or was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, notice that Jesus asked them about John's baptism twice. He twice demands an answer from them. See, Jesus, Jesus came, sorry, John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins that bypassed the temple sacrifices. It was free. In other words, no sacrifices were required except for a repentant heart. No money was exchanged no requirements to visit the temple. So Jesus, by asking this question, is aligning himself with the ministry of John the Baptist by virtue of the things that he did the day before. And if John's baptism was from heaven, then it revealed that even heaven had turned its gaze away from 
the ritualism that was taking place in the temple. And if it was, um, and that it was now focused not so much on the sacrifices, but on the heart of man. So now, um, the religious leaders answer Jesus. But of course, they're, they're taken back by his, his counter question. Because his question exposed them. It showed them for who they really were. And so they really have two questions or two options as far as answering. They can either say it was from heaven, which is not a good thing, or they can say it was from man, which wouldn't be a good thing. So they're kind of in this pickle. Let's look at the first option, though. Verse 31, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? So in other words, if they answer affirmative to this question, they reveal that they really don't care if something was commissioned from heaven or not. They're just happy doing what they please and ignoring heaven. But if they go with the second option, verse 32, but we sh- shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people for they, held, they all held John, or that John was really uh, a prophet. So if they, if they say that John's baptism was from man, they risk the anger of the crowds who esteem John as a prophet of God. And they're more concerned about the fear of man than they are about honoring and respecting the wishes of heaven. See, they're seeking to evade Jesus' question, but Jesus' question doesn't give them that freedom. This is a lose-lose situation. What the reader of Mark notices is that the lives of Jesus and John are intertwined. And they're intertwined in the purposes of God. When Jesus describes John's baptism, he describes it as from heaven. And of course, that reminds us then even of Jesus' baptism where the Father speaks from heaven. There's a connection there. There's something that is happening that they're both working together. Now, of course, we understand that John the Baptist's purpose was to be a forerunner preparing the way of the Lord. But they certainly didn't see it. So the religious leaders, the ones upon whom the spiritual direction and health of Israel depends, answer Jesus' question with an empty answer. Verse 33, so they answer Jesus, we do not know which in modern vernacular means we plead the fifth. We don't want to answer the question. So we say, well, I'm too too dumb to figure that one out, right? They have no understanding of God's working in their midst and therefore demonstrate that they have no authority to speak. Now, friends, it's a reminder to us that our thoughts and our opinions cannot simply be a reflection of earthly thinking, a thinking that is rooted in the sinful passions and ideals of this world, thinking that changes based on the whims of society or the latest public poll. And so one of the questions we need to ask ourselves, and I think we need to be honest about this, is this. Are you caught up in the ideas of man? Are there things that are happening in our culture that are the promotions of the ideas of man that have captivated your thinking and now might even be the lens through which you look when you're reading the Word of God? Let me just take a couple of examples. In the arena of politics, 
Are you so political that your politics has begun to influence how you read the Bible? How do you answer the question, who is your neighbor? You know, well, that neighbor over there, he's a Republican. I don't know, or that, he's, a, he's a Democrat. I'm like, you know, those Democrats. And this one over here, he's a libertarian. I don't know, you know. And so you begin now to even measure the people that you think you might even help but be your neighbor based on what political party they at least espouse. That's so foreign to Scripture. And yet we may not even boast that way, but in our heart, are we thinking that way? Are we swayed to have compassion over someone that might be more along our political lines than someone who is dressed in a way that boasts something that we totally disagree with? Or are we just called to be compassionate? <laughs> you see, these are little subtle ways that that being caught up with the thinking of the world that we somehow have connected to because of some issues that we think are important to shape then how we live our lives. And I'm not saying those issues aren't important. They are important, but we are called to be citizens of heaven first. Or how about the arena of finances? Are you so caught up in your finances that you've lost sight of God's promise to take care of you? There's a balance there, isn't there? You see a need... And you have resources, and you can say, well, I can help with this need. And it's, you know, let's just say it's a need of, of someone that you know, and someone you've known for a while, and it's genuine, and it's real. It's not just some person who's standing on the corner with a sign, you know. And you're saying, I have some, some money. I have a few thousand dollars. I could help this person. It would, it would make a huge change in impact. I know that they, they're seeking to, to, to make things right. And you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give. Or is it like, well, you know, this doesn't fit in my portfolio, and I'm going to need this for retirement and all this kind of stuff. You don't know if you're going to live tomorrow. So the question is, how do you view your finances? And you can be so caught up with the thinking of man that you don't see the word of God for what it says. And friends, I think there's, there's certainly a sense here that we have these religious leaders that have this understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. We would call them Old Testament scriptures. They were the scriptures to them. But they had, they had padded those things with all sorts of extra stuff. They had lost the essence of the scriptures themselves. And they were now leading a religious system that was void of God's presence and activity in their lives. So friends, our loyalties are to another kingdom, the kingdom of God. And we have God's revealed truth. And because we have God's revealed truth, we stand on the sure word of God that is our authority and is our guide. Listen to 2 Peter 1, 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirm, confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You know this well. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God is sufficient. The word of God is your authority. And not only that, it is the authority then that we make our decisions by. And so if we're asked a difficult question, living in the kind of context in which we live, and we bring a biblical answer, and it runs the risk of stirring up the anger and ire of men, we must not fear men, 
We must trust God. Of course, you get to balance that out by saying, and how am I communicating the word of God that is being revealed? Because sometimes our problem isn't the truth of the word of God. It's how we communicate. And you know what it's like when you start getting into some little kind of argument or spat or something like that? Your emotions could get all juiced, and you begin not to actually minister the word. You begin just to use it as a weapon. So a little caution there. But when the truth isn't your guide or foundation, then you are standing in a boggy marsh and will find yourself stuck and entrenched in your own foolishness. So friends, the religious leaders answered Jesus, but the answered, we don't know. They're trying to avoid the question. But notice then, Jesus' response to them. The clever plans of the religious leadership falls flat on its face. Jesus outwits and exposes them for who they really are. Men who are more consumed with their own prestige and power, more concerned with what the crowds think than what God thinks. That they're supposed to be shepherding God's people. They're supposed to be guiding God's people. They're supposed to be taking them to God for their satisfaction. But they have abandoned God. They've disregarded his word. And now they're overseeing a religious system that is empty of God and his truth. So truly, they were men who were honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. So Jesus tells them, (laughs) neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, what's interesting in this text is that Jesus actually does answer their question. (laughs) And what he's going to do is he's going to answer their question, not there and then, by saying, yeah, it's the authority of the Father. He's going to give them a parable that now explains his authority. So we move from this this confrontation um, question now to this authority that is explained by Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 12, and he began to speak to them in parables. Now, we have to remember, if we go back to chapter 4, we have these parables in Mark, and in those parables, Jesus gives some instruction about parables, and I'm reading at verse 11 and 12 of, of Mark 4, and just, just listen to this. Um, Jesus said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed, indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And so, uh, in other words, when Jesus typically gives a parable, it was designed to present a truth in a, a, of the kingdom in a subtle way that believers may understand, but those who are outside would not comprehend what was being said. But this particular parable is not like that. The meaning of this parable will be very, very plain, and the religious leaders will see exactly what it's about. Now, this parable is often referred to as the parable of the wicked vine dressers or the parable of the tenants, um, as it has there in the chapter heading in in the ESV. But there's two things that we need to note before we even get into the parable. First of all, Jesus is using an image and a practice that the people that he's speaking to we're fully aware of. The content and discussion here about a a vineyard and tenants and that kind of stuff, that practice was understood. This was going on. It wasn't some theoretical illustration that Jesus was coming up up with. He was using common day um, uh, illustration to help communicate a particular spiritual 
point. So these people understood what it was when he was bringing up the issues here in this parable. Secondly, they also know that this uh, that the content or the, or the structure or the language of what he is saying here is rooted in Isaiah chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7. And I want us to read this and I want us to hear how, how God is speaking then, not, not just to Israel, but even to the, the leadership in Israel, but primarily Israel in general. It says this, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He became a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes... Why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, I will, uh, I shall be, uh, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow, uh, shall grow up. I will com- also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but beheld bloodshed for for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So this is is all part of the scriptures that these religious leaders not only would be aware of, but would be very aware of, okay? This is not, for them, obscure text of scripture. This is actually a very central text of scripture for them to understand what God did with them in the history of Israel. With that backdrop then, we begin now to look at the parable that Jesus gives to this religious leadership. Because in the one we read in Isaiah, the focus of attention is the people of Israel. In this particular parable, the focus isn't on the people of Israel. The focus is on the religious leadership of Israel. So notice first of all, It begins by saying, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower. So he's speaking to this religious leadership out of the scriptures that they know, and he's basically saying this. He's saying that that I have prepared this vineyard with everything that it needs in order for it to thrive, in order for it to be lush, in order for it to bear the kind of fruit that it needs to bear. This is, a, this is a vineyard, so the goal here is to produce grapes and for those grapes then to be used to produce wine, okay? And so there's some things that these guys who are listening to this clearly understand about this vineyard, all right? First of all, the vineyard represented the people of Israel, They would understand that that language was clear. Secondly, the man or the owner here represents the Lord. This man planted this vineyard and he put a fence around it. So he put a fence around it to keep out the wild animals and the intruders. He dug a pit. This would be a pit that was dug out of solid rock that would become the vat into which the juice would run from the wine press. 
He also built a tower. And of course, that tower was there for a person to stand on, to look out, to make sure that there are no wild animals that are coming into the vineyard. And oftentimes, they would shoot their slings from there, or they would have other people that would chase off these animals. All right? So the, the whole idea here is he's saying there is hope now for this gift that I'm giving to this people. And so God, in his wisdom, hear this, he chose Israel and raised them up. They are called the vineyard. And as he raised them up, he called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees because it was an evil place, and he promised him that through him all the nations would be what? Blessed. So you have this, this promise. And God's chosen people found themselves in bondage in Egypt, and yet God raised up a leader in Moses to deliver them, to lead them out of Egypt and into the promised land. They get to the brink of the promised land, and leadership changes now from Moses to Joshua, and it is Joshua that ultimately plants God's children firmly in the promised land. So this is summarized by Psalm 44 and verse 2. It says, You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them, talking about their fathers, you planted. And so God planted his people in his land. Now they're in the promised land and he has given them everything that they need to flourish, everything that they need to produce the kind of godly fruit that they need to produce. Right? So there's a vineyard, there's a man, but then there are these, these tenants. Right? There's these tenants. It says, and he leased it to tenants who went into another country. Um. Sorry, that should go back a little bit there. And these tenants then are the leadership in Israel. These are the ones that God put in charge of Israel to care for it. So those listening to this parable, again, would understand the, the illustration that Jesus is using here. They, they, they had no problem comprehended uh, what he was saying because it was common for an owner to have a piece of property that he would lease out to a farmer or a vine dresser so that they knew what they were doing as far as tending the, 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 the crop there and yielding the grapes. Um, and so, again, this was common. But if you remember, there's also this thing in, uh, in the scriptures called a hireling. And this now changes the metaphor a little bit, of course, because the hireling had to do with sheep and a shepherd. And a hireling was someone who was not the shepherd, but was hired then so that the shepherd could have a break, or maybe he had to go off and do something, but the hireling was there to take the place of the shepherd. But here's the thing, a hireling rarely took the same care and attention for that flock as the owner um, had for that particular flock. And the same can be true here about the tenants of the vineyard. They had less care for that vineyard and they had more care about what they were going to benefit from, from that vineyard. So the tenants were not always trustworthy. But God in his graciousness chose Israel, established it as a nation, provided it with the resources so that it could be a thriving nation, and then left it in the care of these tenants, these religious leaders, as well as you would say the, the kings of, uh, you know, through the years. But now I want you to notice verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he said to them, 
Uh, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed um, him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And so you have these servants now that are sent out by this owner to, to go to this vineyard to actually yield some of that harvest. Notice it says here, when the season came, when it was harvest time, the owner sends out his representative, his servant, to go and to get back now the profit that they would receive. In that context, the, the, there was this kind of agreement by tenants that the tenants would get maybe up to a half of the proceeds and the owner would get the rest. So this is just normal business. But notice, they beat and sent the first one away empty-handed. The next one, they, 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 they struck him on the head and sent the servant away shamefully. In other words, he was insulted. He was dishonored. And then they killed the next one, just kind of repeated over time. Now, who are these faithful servants? Well, these faithful servants, by, by means of interpretation, are those prophets of God, those faithful prophets of God that God would send to his people, and in particular to the religious leadership, to speak his truth. How were they treated? Well, as we see here, um, as they spoke, if you remember, prophets didn't always give good news, did they? A lot of the prophecies that were given were bad news. They were confrontations. They were warnings. They were, um, they were rebukes from God. And they were simply speaking God's word to the people. Now, just consider what happened to them. Some were rejected. Some were beaten. Some were even killed. Consider Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. It's Jeremiah 20, verse 2. According to tradition, Isaiah was sawed in two. Zechariah was stoned to teach or because of he was teaching in the temple. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26 says this. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. But consider the kindness and the patience of God. I mean, why didn't God, why didn't the owner just come after that first servant comes and just go and decimate those tenants? And then he sends another one, and what happens? He sends more. Why did he not just kind of rise up with a fury and destroy those tenants that were there? Because God is a patient God. God is kind. He is gracious. And there is a, there's, a, there's a word that we find in the Old Testament, especially when we were going through First uh, and Second Samuel and in the book of Nehemiah, and it's this word, said, his steadfast love. God is patient with his people. And friends, that is a good thing. And what Jesus is saying in this story, in this, um, this parable, is that God has been gracious repeatedly when those who have been shaking their fist at him go on and on and treat his servants with such disrespect and dishonor, and yet he doesn't return in kind. So these tenants not only were not trustworthy, ultimately what they proved to be was evil. How they treated the representatives of this owner was evil. But then we're told something in verse 6. That he still had another, a beloved 
son. Now Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 I think are helpful here. The writer says, long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So what happens here is this. This, 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 uh, this man, of course in this story it's God, but he sends his, not only his servants, but he sends his son. His beloved son, as an act of grace. Again, he, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. And he's a beloved son. Of course, this is an important theological expression. And we, we saw this in Jesus' baptism. We saw this at his transfiguration. The father saying about his son that he is my beloved son. John 3.16 also comes to mind. But as we press back into the Old Testament, we're also reminded of God's words to Abraham as we have this picture of what was yet to happen through the coming son He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. There's this picture about a father's love and a son that he's willing to sacrifice that comes from the pages of the Old Testament that speaks into our text here. We're also reminded of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But there's something different about this son compared to the servants before him. The servants, there are many of them. I mean, repeatedly sent over and over and over again. They were primarily hirelings. In other words, they were were brought in by, by God to speak for him. And they were forerunners. But the son, there's only one son. And this son is an heir. And he is the last one. And so these tenants now, having been the recipients of God's grace and kindness, these tenants um, murder his son in an act of insanity. I'm sorry, that shouldn't be up there yet. The tenants murder his son in the act of insanity. It says in verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Listen, on an earthly level, here's what's going on. Jesus is telling the story, and as he's telling the story, those religious leaders who are hearing it, they're understanding that there's something about the story that's pointing to us. They're they're connecting the dots with what Jesus is saying. And Jesus, in saying this, is identifying himself as this particular son. And in their minds, if there is an heir who's coming, that means that the father has died, and if we can get rid of the heir That means that this land property will be ours. We want this land. We want this crop. We want the fruit of this crop for ourselves. That's what's going on in this passage. That's what's going on in this story. The actions of these men is sinful, selfish. It's insane because they're willing to kill the heir. And they are rejecting the only one that can bring them hope, joy, and deliverance. So in sending the son, hear this, there was nothing more God could do. This was 
um, God's ultimatum. In consequence, nothing remains when Christ is refused. My friends, let's just pause and think about this. I know I've taken time to kind of walk through this parable up to this point. But I want us to step back and just think about some things here. This is a reminder of the foolishness of those who think that by erasing God from their lives, or at least their attempt to erase God from their lives, that they can take control of their earthly and eternal destinies. Of course you cannot erase God from your life. He is there. And you will have to bow the knee one day. You can pretend that he's not there. You can try and push him out and say, you know, we don't want Bibles at all. We don't want any, any communication of gospel witness going to other people at all. There are countries that have banned that kind of stuff. They want to push God out of their world. But that doesn't change the reality that God is still present there. And he will always be present there. Friends, even today, God's love comes at those who have heard the gospel and rejected it and cast Jesus aside. I am an example of one of those people. Growing up in a, in a Christian home, hearing the gospel over and over again, mocking and scorning the things that my parents were doing, and yet God in his providence was all the time being patient with me and drawing me to himself. And that is what happens with so many people. His love persists like the waves of the ocean day after day in the face of rejection and rebellion. And if you have been rejecting Christ and his gospel and you're still breathing, you are still being overwhelmed by his persistent, patient, and kind love. See, one of the intents of sharing a parable like this, one of, the, one of the ways in which God is patient is his patience is, is what God uses to lead us to what? What does scripture say? Repentance. God's patience is out there. His grace, his kindness is out there because he's leading us to a place where we can say, yes, now I see it. Now I need to humble myself. So friends, if you're breathing and you've been rejecting Christ, you've been rejecting the gospel, there is still hope for you. That breath has been given to you as a gift from God so that you will hear and repent and believe. You say, well, I reject that. You're still breathing, aren't you? <laughs> Which means that God is still at work. And the waves of his kindness are still heading your direction. But friends, if you continue to reject Christ and his gospel, it's like poking your finger in the eye of God. I don't know if anyone's ever done that to you. It's not fun, is it? Especially if you're a lady with like really sharp nails. No one likes to be poked in the eye. Now we can only imagine what's going on in the hearts of the hearers right now. How their anger must be stirring up. We certainly see it because of what is said at the end of this, this text. We've already known that they've wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to arrest Jesus. They want to you know, get him out of the way. Those things have already been said in the gospel so far. 
But notice what is next, verse 9. And here I want you to see the severity of God's justice. What will the owner of the vineyard do? I mean, Jesus is telling the story, and now he's coming, and he's confronting them. And these people know that Jesus is not speaking somehow, you know, kind of out there about some people that they don't realize. They know that Jesus is speaking directly to them. He's not just explaining authority. He is the authority here. And they are under the authoritative word of Jesus. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. If you poke God in the eye enough, you run the risk of his judgment and his justice. In biblical terms, you're eliciting the wrath of God. And in just a few years, the temple would be destroyed it would bring an end to the ongoing sacrifices in the temple. It would bring an end to the, the, the priesthood and the Sanhedrin. That would be that religious leadership. And the vineyard would be taken away from the tenants and given to others. There was a, a new administration that was already in the works to begin with a rabble group of men who were following with Jesus. And of course, that new administration would be birthed, and we would understand it to be called the Church of Jesus Christ. It was no longer something unique to Israel, but now it involved, primarily at that point in time, a spreading into the Gentile world. This is God's justice, but it's also God's grace. <laughs> Right? This is God's justice on a people who have chosen to reject him, but in their rejection, God opens up a door and, a, and, a, and a, a, a breath of fresh grace blows through now into a world that had been, um, had been eclipsed from the truth of who God was because of the way that the worship of God had, had taken place. In Israel at that point in time, the temple had become empty of God and void of him. Now, friends, this brings us then to the beauty of God's providence. Just as he's telling the story, here are the consequences, but then here is the providence. So Jesus, because he had lulled the religious leaders into a trap by telling this story about the, an absentee landlord and, and the, the problem with these rebellious tenants, he turns the tables on them and they realized that they were the evil tenants, refusing to yield the fruit uh, to God. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118. And he begins by saying, have you not read the scriptures? Which, by the way, speaking to religious leadership is not a good thing. That is a statement of confrontation. Right, so here he's exercising this authority. And he says in verse uh, verse 10, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So this analogy moves from agriculture to construction. And here ultimately is what he's saying. You know, you reject what you consider to be a stone that is worthless, and it is this very stone that now has been this, now becomes this cornerstone of what God has been planning all along. Now, the stone could either be a foundational cornerstone that kind of gives the, 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 the basis for the structure of a building, or it can be that keystone that you've seen the arches, and at the top of the arch there has to be this one stone that is 
that is you know, shaved just right to make sure that the arch is strong. That's the picture. Without this stone, everything else falls apart. Jesus then is that cornerstone. He's saying, listen, you had a question. <laughs> By what authority do you come into this place and do these things? And Jesus says, by the authority of the Father who has been at work through his servants speaking to Israel and their leadership, who now is sending his son, who is the heir, that's why he's called the son of God, I speak to you with authority. Now you wonder, as we've said just a few minutes ago, that you know, this, this kindness leads to repentance. That's the whole goal. But how do they respond? The authority has been questioned. His authority has been explained. But now the authority is rejected. Verse 12. Now, there's a really profound um, idea in verses, verse 12 here. And, and they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Well, wow, you guys are just really, really smart. They perceived that, that Jesus was telling this parable against them. Of course they perceived that. That's the whole point. They were smothered with that reality, and it drives them now to arrest Jesus. So they were highly perceptive, a little sarcasm there, but they were also deeply offended. And friends, this is not repentance. This is entrenched rebellion against what they know to be true. Now, this parable is very much like the parable that the prophet Nathan gave David after he exposed, or after David committed adultery. It exposed David for his sin and his guilt. But David responds by listening and recognizing his guilt and his sin. And he comes to God and he repents and he's restored. But these religious leaders do not respond in the same way. Rather than repent, they dig their heels in and now even more want to kill him. And clearly we've seen that they're not so concerned about the truth of what God has said in his word. They're more concerned about what the people think. They're more concerned about their positions of authority and prestige in the temple. They're more concerned about the religious system than honoring God with their hearts. So instead, we, we find men who are unwilling to repent. So they press on in their sinfulness. They're unwilling to place themselves under the authority of God, his prophets, or his son. That's what Jesus is saying all along in this parable. Now let's just kind of push this home a little bit more personally in our lives, thinking this through. All right, number one, some concluding thoughts. Just trying to lay out here this, this struggle, this encounter. But let's think through um, these, these last three things. First of all, I want us to consider beholding Christ. Remember that the, the gospel has been given to us really under three words. Identity, asking the question, who is Jesus? And of course the answer is the Son of God. Mission, why has he come? to go to a cross and die for our sins, then there's response, how we respond to that. And what we have here then is an opportunity for us to behold Christ. What we have in one sense in this parable is the history of Israel, <laughs> right? 
We have the history of Israel that culminates now with this son coming and coming to claim his rightful fruit, but being rejected by his very people and being killed, being treated badly. And is that not a picture of not only what has happened, but what was yet to happen in the story? That son has the right to be heard. He is there to confront the state of man-made religion, and he has the right to speak into their lives. So this parable points to the fact that Jesus is critically important to the furthering of God's purposes. He is the cornerstone. He is essential to God's master plan. And so one of the things that Mark wants us to do here is simply to behold Jesus. You read this parable, and you're like, wow. I mean, is he really saying all these things? I mean, this is, this is pretty clear. Why would they not get it? And you begin to see that Jesus is the very Son of God, the beloved Son of God. Secondly, not only behold Christ, but I want to encourage you to be sensitive or submissive um, and, and remind yourself that you don't make Jesus Lord of your life, that he is Lord. He is the very Lord of your life. So this text teaches us that Jesus has a rightful place being Lord of the temple, but he's also Lord of your life. So your, your conversion and your Christian walk happen as a result of you having a heart of humility that is willing to listen to what Jesus says, to trust what Jesus says, to submit to what Jesus says, and to obey what Jesus says. You're recognizing his right to be that Lord. You're recognizing his rightful place to be the authority in your life. And having a master in your life who knows what is best for you, who communicates what is best for you, who encourages you with what is best and, of course, comes with mercy. And, friends, to, to have that information, to have that available to us is a gift. When I can say, what does God say I need to do? Or what does Jesus command in this situation is a gift. To have that before us in the text of God's word. So there's an encouragement here to, to stop fighting against God being the one who is in charge of your life. Stop trying to hold on to your sin. Stop rebelling, but place yourself under his care, listening, trusting, submitting, and obeying him. And finally, there's really an emphasis here for us to see the importance of bearing fruit. You see, bearing fruit comes as a result of the gospel. It comes as a result of the work of God in us. In fact, in the very uh, section of Scripture that we're in, we ask ourselves the question, what fruit does God require from us today? And the answer comes from what precedes this text as well as what comes after this text. God requires that our church be a house of prayer for all nations. He requires that we be a forgiving community. He requires that to be faithful, uh, that we need to be faithful to render to God what belongs to God, and we're going to get to that. To love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. 
and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So this passage presses home two questions that really relate to this fruit. One directly at leadership and one to those who are individuals in the church. Now this one is for us to consider as far as leadership is concerned. And I would say this, whether you're an elder or whether you're in some other position of leadership in the church, consider this. Are you leading God's church as representatives of God seeking to care for and nurture God's children so that they will be producing good fruit as citizens of God's new kingdom? Are you mindful of the wild beasts that are out there that might actually enter into the vineyard, using that analogy? Or do you just kind of let it happen? Are you neglecting to faithfully water and tend to that, that vine or that, that vineyard? There's a great responsibility to put on the leadership in the church. To have ears, to have eyes, to be watching, but to be ministering the truth of God, to nurture that vineyard toward being like Christ. Now let's just look at it on a personal level. Christian, are you producing good fruit in your life? The passage in Isaiah, it says the reason God destroyed his vineyard was because the vine only produced wild grapes. My understanding is literally that means stinky fruit. Fruit, yes, but it was bad fruit, fruit that can't be used, worthless fruit. We're all called to be bearing fruit out of the gospel. And that's why we have, for example, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. It's fruit that comes as a result of God at work in your life. Now the question is this, does Jesus have authority to speak into your life? You better believe he does. He is the authority. And he will always be the authority. The question is, are we willing to listen? Are we willing to humble ourselves? Are we willing to be submissive to that authority? I want to challenge you. There may be some areas in your life where you're saying, yeah, I've got it. Other areas you're like, no, God, stay out. He wants it all. He wants the freedom and the right to speak into your life in every area. Lord, help us today as we wrestle through this passage, Lord, as we thought through what these religious leaders must have been thinking, as we consider the words that came out of uh, your son Jesus Christ, Lord, we, 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 we recognize that, that, that your son is, is in this line of, of succession of those whom you sent, but he is that final one. He is the sacrifice once for all. He is the heir, and he has accomplished what he has accomplished for us. And Lord, we, we just want to kind of step back and, and see the big picture of what it is that you have done and what it is that you are doing in us. May we be faithful, not only to embrace the fact that you are our Lord and Savior, but to live our lives in such a way that we are living out of your lordship, that we're listening to what you have to say, that we recognize that you, you have the right, you are the authority in our lives, and we should listen to you, we should humble ourselves, we should submit ourselves to you. And Lord, would you help us now just to consider ways in which we have been falling short in that. 
Get, Lord, give wisdom, we ask. Give strength, give direction. For your glory, we ask these things. Amen.